This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, Damian Mason, your host. You already knew that because it said that in the introduction. I've got a great program for you today. Kurt Covington, he is the Senior Director of Institutional Credit at Ag America, which is one of the largest non-bank agricultural learning lending firms in the United States of America. Kurt was on this, ep- uh, this podcast about nine months ago, and we talked about all things economic, all things impacting agriculture, all things that we see in the newspaper or we hear about and he brings it back to the farm gate and to the consumer so he and i are really uh i guess uh, a good pair in this regard because i'm the current events marketplace guy he gives me some real numbers and some economics behind it that's what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about interest rates land values the 10731 rule of agricultural deals farm income government payments inputs China, Mexico, the trade situation, and weather out west. That means is the weather out west going to spread and give us some scares? Big stuff, about 10 topics I just named, and you know others will come up. Kurt Covington, thanks for being here, my friend. Good to see you again, Damon. How are you? I'm good. So uh, a little background, if you haven't heard uh, the prior episode with Kurt, it's probably about, go back about nine months ago and you'll find it, uh, dear listener. Um, Kurt and I also have some history. Uh, we have spoken to the same crowd, so we've bumped into each other on the road, which is how we know one another, because, as you can imagine, there are these meetings, these agricultural business meetings. They have people like him on stage, they have people like me on stage. And then we had to take a cab or an Uber, or maybe we just hired some a rickshaw, I think it was, in Lubbock, Texas, to haul us, or maybe it was Amarillo. <clears throat> Amarillo, I guess it was, to haul us to the airport. So he and I uh, rode in the same rickshaw together in Amarillo. And when we were speaking to the Texas Bankers uh, Ag uh, Ag Division. (laughs) All right. The first first thing you wanted to lead off with was interest rates. Um, Federal Reserve, they told us that interest rates were going to go up a quarter of a point. They did. What's the big deal? Yeah, I think part of the problem is I think, uh, you know, we also heard from the Federal Reserve and we've heard from a number of pundits, economists, that there was going to be six rate hikes, eight rate hikes, seven rate hikes, 15 rate hikes, four rate hikes. Uh, Honestly, um, Ukraine then fell in the middle of all of this. And then I think uh, the Federal Reserve thought, oh, I'm out. Let's let's back this off just a little bit. But as you know, Damon, and I think many of your listeners know, uh, in the the yield curve, what we call the yield curve interest rate. There's anticipation of inflation and there's anticipation of what the Federal Reserve is going to do, follows, you know, the the 10 year Treasury. Um, If if I had talked to you in January, my 10731 rule would have applied. And here we are, not quite at the end of March, but close to it. It's now the it's now the 10-5-0-0 zero, zero rule. 
All right, before we get to your 10731 rule, which I think is brilliant, and also it gives a real um, view to anybody that's in business. Remember, my listeners are ag professionals and then progressive, successful-minded farmers. I always like to let them see things from the other side of the desk. You know, I always said background in comedy, you want to get good uh, in comedy like I was doing 28 years ago. You record yourself and then you listen to the tape from the audience's perspective. And by God, when you see your business from their perspective, it makes you better fast. And that's one of the things I like about having you on here. You're going to give the other side to the ag professional, the ag company, the ag entrepreneur, or the ag, uh, the farm or their rule. First off, Interest rates, you know, to the average listener that just has a normal job that wants to be a better ag professional saying, why does this matter so much? Well, big story is we use a shitload of borrowed money in ag- in production agriculture. So start me there. Uh, interest costs as a general rule of thumb uh, in normal, normal times, uh, Damon, historically, particularly the last 10 years, have represented such a small percentage of the operating budget for the average farmer across the U.S. that, you know, it was pretty much inconsequential. People had their operating loans that were on variable rates. They didn't see that rate move really much for 10 years. People that were borrowing long term, I was talking to a borrower yesterday. He says, I have not been on a fixed rate loan in 25 years, and I'm way ahead of anybody that locked their interest rate in on a fixed rate. But today, it's a lot different. The thing that gets impacted first is the margin on your operating budget. So if you're, let's just pick some numbers, right? Whether you want to use prime, LIBOR, SOFR, pick pick something. Yeah, yeah. It's just use a number that doesn't, that we all heard, and then compare it to the average production ag operation that's borrowing one million dollars, which to some people, you know, to your neighbors in suburbia, it's like, I mean, these these people borrow a million dollars each season <laughs> operating. And you're like, yeah, well, some, yeah. so, some of yeah. them are a few million, right? So interest cost has gone from one of your cheapest. And look, Damien, I, I say this to everybody, you know, bankers, we'd like to say that we're building relationships. The truth of the matter is when you're dealing with farmers, they're looking at money and they're saying, how much rent do I have to pay for that money? I'm renting money. I'm used, I'm renting it. Yep. That rent cost has gone up anywhere between 40 and 100 basis points or, you know, a half a percent to a full percent. You say, well, yeah, okay. You know, if my interest costs only represent 10% of all my input costs, eh, that's no big deal. But if you're working on a 2% margin, you know, profit margin, that... That is a significant difference. Well, let's, let's just think about it this way. The average person that doesn't use a tremendous amount of borrowed money for operating, like much of agriculture, production agriculture does, they might say, okay, interest rates went up uh, a percent. What's the big deal? When it goes from three to four, 1% increase. It's really is a 25% more, three to four is a 30, 25 to 33% more cost of the money. So it's if your rent went up 25 to 33%, it's not that it went up one point. It went from three to four, which is a, a huge a, a advance of the actual cost of money. And then let's take that one further step for the, uh, for those who don't understand agriculture, and they're probably not listening to this, but yeah, who knows, maybe someone's driving around in there. Corvette listening for some. Yeah, I guess I get some non-ag listeners, yeah. 
farmers do not control the price of the product they sell. It's set by the market. Yeah. So it's not like the retailer down the street that says, you know, that the cost of uh, a six pack of Coke is costing me 25 or 30 or 40 percent more or the cost of the gasoline I'm putting in the tank for you to yeah. put your car is costing 20. Yeah, the, the, ability to pass on the, cost. the ability to pass just, on costs. Right. It's harder. At best, at best, the market recognizes it maybe the next season or perhaps even further out than that. In the meantime, you have farmers that have made some choices all before this happened. One, I'm going to be open to the market, right? I'm going to take my gamble in the market. And if corn today is five bucks and I'm hoping it's going to be seven, well, good for you. It doesn't always work that way. There's the ones that are very conservative and follow many of their bankers' leads and their advisors and say, you know, I should probably uh, lock in or contract some of this corn to make sure that I, I have an established margin so my operating lender feels comfortable. That all got blown up at the beginning of this year. All of it's blown up. Budgets that were set between the banker and, and the farmer, so those input costs are up 30%, depending on where you're farming, what it is, and what it consists of. And while revenue has gone up, many of them had their, uh, you know, their their corn locked in or their beans locked in or contracted. So it's I it's kind of the the double whammy effect of this, and it hit everybody. I remember reading last year in July, all fertilizer costs were going up, blah, blah, blah. and there were many farmers that last fall kind of did the right thing. But there's plenty of them today that are open to the market on all their input costs, didn't plan ahead, and it's hurting them. Yeah. So if you didn't have, so we know the input prices, uh, and again, I always reference that there are folks that are a little bit further removed. So just, uh, it was on a Fox news bit yesterday, uh, urea is up 160%, you know, in the last six months and, uh, anhydrous, which we use for nitrogen. If you're a, if you're a cranberry, if you're a cranberry producer in Massachusetts, you're like, okay, Damien, what's all this stuff mean? Anhydrous, we use it for nitrogen because, uh, obviously wheat and particularly corn or grass plants require a great deal of nitrogen. Those costs are all up exceedingly, uh, over what would be the transitory 7.9% inflation we're being told about by our Federal Reserve. Right. Anyway, I've also pointed out, Kurt, those numbers are complete bullshit. Uh, the same government that told you that inflation was transitory, they started telling us that one year ago. And I said, okay, <laughs> transitory is a word that I never used in all of my agricultural economic studies, but I can tell you this, it's supposed to mean temporary. Well, you know what? Cancer's temporary. Uh, you know, <laughs> everything's temporary. So, right. what, what, you know, call, saying something is transitory when you really mean temporary. Well, the truth is everything's temporary until it kills you. Um, I don't see any way that we can pretend it's only 7.9% inflation when you see what just everything from a, a chicken breast at the store to, the, again, the price of fertilizer. And these numbers are really going to get put a squeeze on us. But the margins are still there if you didn't sell all of your crop, right? I agree with that. You know, can I just step back a second on this? Sure. So laugh because people say, okay, so fertilizer cost has gone up big deal. Let me, let me just go through a list of a, a budget that I looked at last week of a farmer. So I said, okay, tell me about your budget. And he says, well, let's see. All my input costs have gone up. That would be fertilizer, chemical, diesel, propane, repairs, custom work, land rent, labor, and interest, he said, and interest. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, did I miss anything, Kurt? 
said, I think you pretty much covered it all. See, see, seed and feed, he didn't maybe get those two, but yeah, pretty yeah. much everything. And it's all well, the same situation. And it's interesting because he's also got some rented ground. And so I'll just kind of give you an example. In this state that he operates in, land rent, 250 bucks an acre. Okay. If you use typical input costs for this year based on his budget, typical plus his overhead, his break even is now about 550 for corn. Last year it was about four bucks. That's a buck, a dollar fifty. Now, if he, you know, he may have been planning ahead, locked in his corn at five dollars, <laughs> and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to be good for now." All of a sudden, he finds himself potentially upside down if he hasn't locked in any of his input costs. And since you're a big Texas fan, right, the old Texas hedge, right? Yeah. So I'm telling you, I, I I'm not saying this. For, for those farmers that were judicious, that were planning ahead, that thought about this and got lucky in some cases, are going to have a decent year. But there are other commodities out there, Damien, that you're open to the market no matter what you do. And, you're, you know, there's just not a lot you can do about it. So where do you see... Uh, you know, I'm obviously around a lot of corn and soybean people being an Indiana guy. And then my work that I do with extreme ag, which dear listener, if you have not tuned into extreme ag to check that out, I'd encourage you to do it. If you want to see what some of, uh, some of the more progressive success minded yield, uh, record setting farms are doing, especially with trials for some of the products that have not even yet come to market and some that are new to market, go to extreme ag.farm. There's no E on the front of extreme extreme ag.farm. We've produced like 60 or 70 videos videos already, great product trials, business practices, uh, family business, uh, chemistry, uh, all the different things that happen. Go and check out extremeag.farm. Anyway, these guys are telling me they're going to be okay because you got the crop insurance ability. You've got the government program ability. You can lock in a profit unless we have some crazy thing. And again, if you weren't oversold, so I think we're okay there. Where is it going to hurt our cattle people? I think cattle, uh, if you're selling, are you selling cattle? Are you getting hurt? Are you, if you're selling strawberries, are you getting hurt? Where are you getting hurt right now? You know, uh, boy, it's interesting. Cause I think the cattle market, uh, while it's improving again, while top line revenue seems to be improving certainly for the cow calf operator, their input cost, the price of it. I didn't even get into this, but, the price of hay, number one hay in certain parts of this country, three three hundred fifty three hundred fifty dollars a ton. Now I don't care whether you're a dairy or you're a feedlot operation or whether you're a you know a farmer feeder or whether you're just you know you're just a cow calf operation that needs you know exit three hundred fifty dollars a ton is one hundred and fifty dollars a ton over what a lot of them uh, would view as being a reasonable price for hay. So that cost alone, we you know. The, the crops that are going to get hurt the worst this year, in my opinion, are those specialty crops because here's the problem and here's the solution. The problem is going to be labor costs that no one's talking about. Yep. And I'm telling you, friggin' labor costs is an issue. And where are all the specialty crops? A lot of them are grown in the, in the free state of California. Right. Um, and uh, God bless them. But you, a minimum, if you're in the specialty crop business, first of all, it's hard to find labor. Yep. They've all migrated to the construction side where they're getting 25, 30, 40, 50 bucks an hour to pound nails. Yeah. So I, I, the thing that you're pointing out, and I've been saying this to my audience, is that we, we have a situation where 
the the and I get interviewed on Newsmax TV and Cheddar News and whatnot, and I keep bringing it back to labor also, and of course energy. But like you just said, I'm I live half the year in Arizona, and you can talk about what comes across the border and all that. You know, uh, if you if you were uh, needing specialty crop help in in specialty products here in Arizona, like you said, these guys they need roofers, so semi skilled. Uh, if you can just bump from being a, a celery cutter to the next level, like you said, carrying shingles, you're going to make more money by double. And so this right. will be a real issue. And you're in Florida part of your life, most of your life, same issue there. When you've got a building boom and you can't build houses fast enough, and the only issue there is can you get the shingles? We're going to see this. I think it doesn't end in 2022 either. Yeah, I don't think it ends, and particularly depending on what state you live in, and Arizona is not immune to this, but if you particularly look at California, yeah. here, here's what's going to happen, right? The advocates for higher wages for unskilled labor in, in the farming business is going to get driven out by technology. And I've, I've talked to, I've seen, mm-hmm. and I've been to demonstrations of labor replacing, not labor saving, completely labor replacing uh, technology. And I remember a year ago, that's probably two years, a year and a half ago, a uh, strawberry harvesting equipment Mm -hmm. where the technology company said, you know, we're only about 25% effective. In other words, if there were a hundred berries to be picked, about 25 of them get picked and not squished by the technology, right? and, and right, it, or it doesn't get mixed. He thinks this year, so a year later, they'll be at 50%. And he thinks that within three years, they will be able to completely replace, if you're willing to buy the equipment, right? And assuming you have labor shortages, which are going to be out west for it. It, it, it is mind boggling what's going to happen. So I've been saying this exact thing to my audience, you know, meat processing is another one, Kurt, that we're not there yet. And I said, the first one that's going to come to is poultry because poultry is the most standard sized product. You bring right. a, you bring a damn steer. It could be an 850 pound steer or an 1850 pound steer. You can't, set an assembly line. I worked in a factory for three summers. My wife's a factory worker, uh, you know, growing up, we were, I know how manufacturing works. You can't set mechanically um, uh, automated line for something that varies that much, but on chickens, that chicken don't vary from 6.4 pounds, period. So that's what's going to happen first. You talked about strawberries. You know, the other thing I thought you were going to tell me was with the cost of labor going up, if this new technology that can pick strawberries rather than human hands having to do it, if they get to where they can get 50% of the crop, they'll probably just go ahead and do it and say it's still it's cheaper to waste half the crop than to hire human hands. And that's the sad thing. It contributes right back to food waste, but it's because we can't get the human hands. Right. And the other thing that we've done is we've encouraged people not to go out to the farm and work. Do you know the average age of the average farm worker that's out there today is as old as the owner of that farm himself? They're in their 60s. That next generation down has either through education or the decision that they don't want to go work on the farm, that they're going to go do something else. It's it's you know, it's you can still find the labor, but it's incredibly aged. And it's not just out what I mean, it's it's in all sectors of agriculture everywhere. Thankfully, if you go through the Midwest, it's not as labor intensive. It's you know more machinery intensive. But in the end, look, if you 
look, if you own a dairy in the Midwest, you got the exact same problem that a dairy out west does. You got to find milkers, you got to find herdsmen, you got to make sure those people show up every day. And given where and what it, I have to admit, what this, this administration has done by just handing out money for too long a period of time yep. has encouraged people to not work. Yeah, by the way, I rent my farm ground to a large-scale dairy operator in Indiana. And yeah, the base level job that when you when you come to his place and say, uh, my cousin says I can come here and have a job. They're like, okay, first job they give you is they you spray off and clean the udders and the teats of the cows and you put the milkers on. And to people that aren't around this, it was about five years ago on a CNN story. They said, well, they don't milk them by hand anymore. They have machines. And then there are some people that first off thought we still milk cows by hand. And secondly, I think they thought the machine was just it ran around, did it? No, there are vacuum things, but you still have human hands to put them on. My understanding is on the dairy front that robotics are, you can't buy robots now because the same problem we're all facing. The dairy said, screw it. I'm going to go ahead and start doing part of mine and phasing in a robotics. And you can't get the robotics anymore. Uh, it's in, it's in tremendous demand is my understanding. Yeah. The first, the first, if I could just, it was interesting when robotics first came out, the challenge was, a, does it work? But, but B, could you get someone there to replace it or fix it or do some work on it if you had a problem? That was the initial one was, well, hey, great. I'm going to put this on my little 400 cow dairy, but, but the supplier is in Wisconsin and the only repair guy I know, you know, would have to drive from who knows where to where to. Today, that's not the issue. Now the issue is, can you scale this up for a 5,000 cow dairy? And the answer is, yes, you can. Yeah, it looks like that's happening. So we just talked about strawberries, talked about dairy, we talked about labor. I think we all have that. Let's move on to the next topic that you touched on. Going back to from the banker's role. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we borrow a lot of money in, in production agriculture. And even if you don't, you, you know, there's probably somebody saying, hey, I'm gonna, I've always stayed small. I've always paid uh, cash for my operating. Uh, maybe when it's 3% money, I was stupid to do that. But now we're talking 5% borrowed uh, operating capital. I'm not going to do it. You know, even they have to look at things from the perspective of the banker. 10-7-3-1 rule. <laughs> you know, I always grew up in this. I can't remember what. So I've been doing this 45 years. I can't remember who told me this. But it doesn't look a day. If you're watching this, dear viewer, because remember, we've got the, we got the YouTube channel. Damien makes it. Go to YouTube, hit subscribe. And uh, he doesn't look a day over 50. Okay. Kurt, you've been doing it for four years. Uh, 10731 rule. Everybody has little rules in their industry that even, even uh, uh, folks outside of it don't know. So what's that mean? So in, in, in normal times, if you get 10 applications in the door, seven of them are viable, meaning it's a loan you think you can make. Out of those seven, you get three of them that tell you, yeah, move ahead. Uh, let's pursue the, the request and uh, let's get me approved. Get them approved and one of them takes the deal. Mm -hmm. So... Seven of them are worth seven of them as a lender, seven of them you would have loaned the money to. Out of the 10, there was a three that you just threw out, you know, ah, you, you, it's, there's a reason, you know, boom. But only one of the seven used to come through. Yep. And you know what we used to say? There was an old saying that uh, if if one out of every 10 deals get done, thank the other nine for getting you the 10th. 
Right, right, right. And then I, I remember, so, I remember my, my banker friends also Kurt, told me that uh, if you've never made a bad loan, you probably missed out on a lot of good ones. I remember that being a banker rule too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, but, so I had a, a fellow I worked with one time that said, I've never made a bad loan. I said, well, you probably haven't made enough. <laughs> but, but now we're now we're at the 10 applications come in. Maybe five of them are viable, given where interest rates are. Given where land values are, and people say, well, yeah, I got all this land equity. Hey, that's great. But if you're going to borrow off this land equity, the cost of that is going to go way up. And so you might have 10 that come in, five that appear viable. You know, today, out of those five, you're lucky sometimes if one of them says, you know, I'm ready to move ahead, but I need a better interest rate. I can't give you this. This is. You're looking at it, pal. This is as good as it gets. And you know, a lot of them just say, mm, let me think about that. And then they go dark. So when they go dark, does that mean that they didn't need the capital or it means that they just, that someone else wanted it, wanted the deal worse and has given them a better terms. What, what, what happens? I think they came to a realization. Maybe this is not a great deal. Okay. So, and, but, but there has to be some education between the banker and the borrower. You say, look, I can do, but if it if it's you know if, if this is going to cost you you know 100 basis points more right another full percent here, here's what it does to your repayment ability here's what what it does to your liquidity because you're going to drain cash to make those payments here's what your crop commodity prices have to be on a go forward basis to make all this work and then all of a sudden they wake up the next morning in bed at 3 a.m. going holy shit I'm not maybe maybe this isn't a great idea yeah. <laughs> They do come to the realization, right? They do come to the realization. I would tell you the ones that come to it first are the ones that went through the 80s. A question for farmers and agricultural landowners. Have you ever lost yield to unexpected pest or disease? Well, of course you have, because every season you're forced to guess about some of the most important management decisions. But now you don't have to guess. Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis, like any soil sample survey is going to do for you, Pattern can predict next season's risk from the most damaging of pests and diseases, including corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. So for the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operational level. Time to refine your management decisions. Time to optimize your inputs and maximize your yield. Simply go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. Most of my listeners probably skew younger because more podcast listeners are younger than older, meaning there's not as many 75-year-olds that listen to podcasts. But I would say this. I just had this uh, discussion with a younger, okay, younger, meaning he's 30s, um, you know, listener. And I say, you know, man, I don't pull that thing of walking uphill to school both ways in the blizzard like uh, your grandparents talked about. And I know that the, the younger people in their 30s, Kurt, have heard enough about the 80s. They've heard about the 1980s. They've heard about the 1980s. I said, I ain't going to do that. But just kind of like I, I put in my book, I said, I'll just tell this this way. And it's not bullshit. This is a true story. 
In the 80s, there were some farming assets that were so bad off, the bank wouldn't repossess them. And that's the best way to explain the 80s. We can talk about how terrible it was. Interest rates spiked. There was no commodity demand. Farmers were obviously, there were some farming situations that were so bad, the bank wouldn't even repossess because the bank didn't want it. That's how underwater they were. That's a true story. And can I tell you, uh, uh, in the last dairy crisis in 08, 09, there were some dairies that had an appraised value of close to zero, meaning there was it, the, the milk prices were so bad, mm-hmm. absolutely no sales activity to justify the the value that they wanted to do a refinance. And ultimately, those deals that went into workout, uh, the bank said, "You know what? We're just going to need to milk these cows. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to need to milk these cows, and we're going to need, need to keep this facility operating. So, right on warm idle until things get better." And it, yeah, like you said, liquid, liquidating yeah. it, liquidating it was liquidating mm-hmm. into not only a loss, a zero. <laughs> right. so we, yeah. might, we might as well operate. We might as well operate at a yeah. little bit of something. Yeah. Um, so speaking of this uh, farm situation, Chicago Federal Reserve, Kurt, tells me, uh, not tell me, I read the article, it was New Year's time, that Midwest farm ground went up 18% in calendar year 2021. I read that and I said, um, I can do anecdotal evidence that says it's been more than 18%. I can go, and again, it's not empirical. I don't have every stat, but I can just give you reference, reference, reference from agricultural properties that I'm seeing. And I said, I think the number's 30%. Now, whether it's 18 or 30, it's up a bunch. Some might even say it's up 50. Um, A friend uh, that I know in agriculture, walked away from bidding for a 68 chunk acre chunk. And I know to the Western people, 68 acres. Well, in Indiana, we get precipitation, 68 acres. You can actually do something with, he walked away from the bidding. He walked away from the bidding on that at $17,000 an acre. It would have sold for probably $8,000 four years ago. So going from eight to 17 in four years, uh, Come on, um, we got we got some real issues yeah. out here on land values, and it's being paid for apparently. So you talk about deals, talk about interests. What's going on? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say, and particularly in the Midwest, you kind of had this bifurcated model. You had really good properties, good corn suitability rating, average production history, whatever, uh, that commanded and, and you know maybe pivot irrigated. It, it commanded the highest price, and people bid on it. And most of the time, when they went to auction, the ones that were auctioning it had a very low level of debt on their existing property and thought, okay, if I just do uh, uh, dollar cost averaging, you know, I've got an average of whatever, $2,000 an acre in debt across all my properties, even though I'm willing to pay 17 or 18 for this and get a big fat loan on it, dollar cost says I can afford this. And then you had the other properties on the other end that weren't the highest quality properties were not, you know, what I would say, suitable to most either investors or other farmers that did have a decline, did kind of had a decline of, in some cases, in pockets, we saw land values went down 25%. That's not the case anymore. Um, there, there seems to be this, and I, I'm very concerned about this because I see bankers following the same trend where if you got dirt, you can't get hurt. So yeah, my favorite thing, I saw it at the Kansas Bankers Ag Conference uh, a few years ago when they talked about the young folks that said, if you got the dirt, you can't get hurt. My parents bought a chunk of farm ground uh, right when we were starting to not be broke in 1981. And then uh, that farm ground became worth less than half 
a year later, it was less than half of what they had given for it. So they did buy, thereby ensure that we would stay broke for another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think my, my challenge is today, there's a lot of lenders in the market that are reaching and they're reaching because they have goals to meet. Mm. So, you know, and the goals aren't about earnings. The goals are about growing assets on your books. And I get it, but but here's the deal that I've learned over, and it took it, it took me a while to figure it out. Right? I mean, in the '80s, we were collateral lenders, just exactly like you said, Damon. You were collateral buyers, actually, in the '80s. I'm seeing some institutions, some lenders starting to reach that are reverting back. You know. You got dirt, you can't get hurt mentality and uh, being collateral lenders. We learned in the 80s, we were collateral lenders and our regulators taught us, oh, no, 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 no. You need to be cash flow lenders. Well, that turned off the spigot because if you were basing everything on on just cash flow, you know as well as I do. And even today, you cannot get a piece of property on a standalone basis to cash flow. It's almost impossible where it is today. So we became very pragmatic. And our regulators helped us along. We were a little slow as ag lenders. And we said, oh, can we, can we be pragmatic about this? You know, collateral is important. So is cash flow. Let's find a way to do it. And we've been that way. But I'm telling you now, I'm seeing lenders starting to reach. And that concerns me in a high interest rate environment, frothy commodity prices, high land values, um, and I'm just a little concerned about it because I think my personal opinion is, and this is me speaking, we're not that far away from a recession. You spoke about the yield curve early on, and a lot of folks, um, you know, hear that and they're like, what are they talking about? And it's always supposed to be predictive of recessions. And, you know, I get it. The yield curve simply means that when short term money is paying more than long term money, it means we have uh, it's, it's silly. Why would you do that? Right. You know. Uh, long-term money should always, long-term, uh, should always pay more. So I don't even have to look at that. I just, I always just go by a bit of data and my gut. And when things look this frothy, uh, I own a house in Arizona. When think, when they tell me my house is worth 33% more than it was a year prior, I'm like, this seems a little wacky. This seems a little out of touch. The commodity prices, the, I mean, you know, there's all these other things going on. So recessionary times may or not, may not be coming, Ag might just be of letting the curve. You know, we were ahead of the whole mainstream on um, these values ascending. What if we were just the torchbearer for the inflation that was to come? And then after the inflation comes some sort of massive correction. Is that what he thinks is going to happen? I do. <laughs> I do. And the people that, and the people are paying $17,000 an acre for farm ground that was just $8,000 three years ago. What are you going to tell them? You better have an outside job. Okay. What about, what about interest? I, it seems that they were telling us we were going to do six, eight, 10 interest rate hikes over the next year because we've got to tame things. Now they're a little gun shy. What is interest rates? I think they go up a bit more. I don't think they go up as much as we might've thought. So another, another half. Yeah. I, I have to use even numbers because I'm kind of a stupid banker. So we start talking three, five and seven, nine. I don't get that. Two, four, six, eight. I'm good with, I, you know, I thought there was going to be four rate hikes. I think uh, the federal reserve and Powell looked at this Ukrainian situation and said, Hmm. Um, and we're inflation, you know, 
I just think everybody's going to take a step back here and say, you know, is this the time to be raising rates given the turmoil that we're seeing in international markets and the impact that it's had on the domestic market? I'm not saying there aren't going to be rate hikes because uh, I think food inflation is the real deal and it's not going away at the end of the summer. Like a lot of people think are in the fall. It's and it, a lot of it's tied to there are certain costs increases that are not going away. We talked about labor, but interest costs are going to stay up without question. Fuel costs, unless we decide to make some significant changes. Yeah in how we, we see our, our um, you know, our oil business domestically, I think that tied up with what is going to be a protracted supply chain issue, the trucking, transportation, yep. boats, planes, trains, automobiles, it's, it's going to continue to, it's, it, look, when you can ship, this is what's crazy. You know, during, uh, during the pandemic, you could ship commodities in a, in a, 747 over to uh, Southeast Asia and into Latin America cheaper than you could put it on a boat. Yeah. When you're using an airplane and it's cheaper, more cheap than, uh, than a cargo ship, it doesn't seem to make any sense, but it's because no. there's no demand for the plane, right? Exactly. So I just, now that the, the, the demand, I just, I just think this is going to be very protracted and could get a little bit difficult. I believe that you, uh, you and I both agree on that. And I don't want to sound like an old timer. And certainly I'm an optimist. I mean, I've been running my own business for 28 years and, and I've been through a lot of it from nine 11 to the, the whole recession, the housing bust, to the pandemic. I've been through a lot of these things. I'm not in any way wishing on to anybody. I just look around and it just, my gut always tells me something. And uh, my gut tells me now things are a little bit out of, uh, out of, out of whack. And <clears throat> And I agree with you that this inflationary situation, and when I get interviewed on the media, I said, this isn't because our farms can't produce the stuff. It's because of the human hands. And you know, the sad part, this is all government induced. We pay, we dis, we shut down economies. We threw a complete wrench into the whole labor situation. There was no shortage of labor two years ago. If you, if you had a, if you had a dry cleaners and you just needed somebody to come and be a dry cleaner clerk, by God, you put a sign out and you got somebody. Now they got signs that say, we'll give you $21 an hour and a 401k to come here and flip burgers. So right. this is not because of any normal natural thing. It's because of government shutdowns that distorted the marketplace. And unfortunately, the same thing with fuel. We can grow the crop. Granted, we're paying more for seed, feed, fuel, fertilizer, if you can get fertilizer, uh, interest, as you said, everything. But we can still do the thing. It gets on a truck, that box of Wheaties, has more fuel in it than wheat in it, right? Right. Yeah. The, the biggest issue that, that I see is not the long haul transportation. You can pl find plenty of trucks that will take you from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the northern border to the southern border. It's that uh, it's a short haul where, you know, you had local truckers that could haul your milk off off the farm to the processor could haul your grain to the elevator could haul your produce to where it needed to go not to a terminal market but to go get a pro those truckers are hard to find they left the farm they left the business and are doing other things and let me just tell you if they wanted if i were smart i'd get out of the banking business and go start up a short-term trucking business and i'd lease everything and i turn back in after this all gets fixed Probably so, but you'd, you'd be in the same situation. I'm, I'm going to be talking tomorrow with my buddy that's in the trucking business. He can't get truck drivers. So, yeah, it's a uh, real problem. 
I thought you were going to say if you were smart. Sometimes I think if I was smart, I'd stop uh, the the speaking and ag racket and just go get my CDL. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Get the track. I just I'm be very comfortable living in you know a big sleeper and just traveling the U.S. and dropping stuff off. So there was that show. If you're since we're talking about the '80s, there was a show called BJ and the Bear. It was about a guy that uh, drove around his truck with a monkey named Bear. You know, I. <laughs> I could just be like Damien, Damien and his dog, uh, just driving around <laughs> with my dog. Okay, uh, farm income. Then I think it's going to be better than certainly what we were predicting. We were saying in the fall, we were saying, "Oh shit, it's going to be terrible. These guys are going to get washed on inputs. Interest rates are going to go up a bunch because of the chairman, of the Federal Reserve, saying that." Then we saw this rally. You know, there's sixteen dollars soybeans and seven dollars corn and wheat. Wheat, if you you know, wheat. The Chicago Board of Trade says it's thirteen dollars. If you actually have new crop wheat coming in, that you're going to harvest in June or July. You can't get anybody's going to give you thirteen dollars for it. So that's a spread like we've never seen before. The real numbers going to be like what nine or ten bucks, which is still quite good. So there's going to be a lot of income coming in. If you didn't overextend yourself. With the exception of, like you said, some of the specialty crops, in general, I think farm income is going to look better than anybody thought just a couple months ago. Yeah, if you were just ignorant of everything that was going on and saying, hey, I'm just going to grow my crop of, you know, fence row to fence row and I'm going to stay open to the market. Yeah, you're going to hit a lick this year. But, you know, what is I don't even know if the numbers correct anymore, but they say that less than five percent of all farmers really have a a marketing plan, you know, a, a, right, right. or contracting, hedging, using options, whatever it is. And the rest of them are open to the market. Well, this is the one in five years where being open to the market is going to, I think, is going to pay off. Anybody that may have may have walked in prices early are still going to be profitable, but not as profitable as they would have been had they been open. And I'm not advocating as a lender, I am not advocating being open to the market, but I'm also not advocating being hundred percent sold. You, you think, Exactly. Don't ever exactly be hundred percent right. sold, but also don't be open to hundred percent exposure. And that's exactly. generally what you get coached from. You know, we work with Silvius, which is a, a company that is all about the integration of government programs with crop insurance and, uh, and, you know, your marketing plan. And, and that's right. the big thing is um, trade, our last topic. No, second okay. to last topic. I've been telling people for as long as they'll listen that China does not want to be our customer. They want to be our replacement. China uh, told us they were going to buy $50 billion worth of our stuff so that we would lift tariffs. That was what, three years ago? Mm-hmm. We said, well, we're going to buy 50, we're going to buy $50 billion. And I said, that's a bunch of lies. They're not going to do that. Last year, they met at 66%, just enough for a passing grade of a D. They bought $33 billion worth of our agricultural stuff. Mm-hmm. Mexico, almost $26 billion. Less than 10% of the population of China, Mexico, but they're damn close to them in terms of commodity. And certainly on a dollars of commodity of ag stuff purchases per human, Mexico's blowing them out of the water. I say yep. concentrate on Mexico, Europe, now with the Ukraine situation, and wean ourselves off of China, just like we can wean ourselves off of buying their crap, wean ourselves off of the need to sell them our crap, because they don't want to buy our crap two years from now. Five years from now, they don't even want to buy our stuff. They want to just make Ukraine stuff. That's probably what's going on right now. They're going to just divvy up Ukraine, China, and Russia. Am I wrong? Hey, the only thing that's kept them from being a powerhouse in the dairy business is being able to accumulate enough land to grow the feed. Right. So you got to go out to 50,000 rural farmers and say, hey, we're going to 
we're going to take your three acres and uh, we, you know, we're going to start growing ham. You know, they've replaced it. Not that this is a big business, but I used to grow walnuts. You don't export walnuts here. They grow more than we do. Right. I mean, and that's just an anecdotal example, but you know, here, here's the thing. Like when you look at Mexico, there's a lot of U S based farming companies that are doing business down there. So they have economic interests and those economic interests can be beneficial to, you know, uh, to the U S in terms of its trade. Because I mean, I think I I have some very good friends in the avocado, but big avocado business. And when the USDA uh, inspector got the, the the bad phone call, and he says, "Well, based on that bad phone call and the threat I got, we're just going to shut down trade." That I, I would encourage you to just go look at what happened to. Um, there's one that's publicly traded. I'll just leave it at that. What happened to their stock? Mm-hmm. And my whole point is that interdependence can be good and it can be bad. But clearly. If you look at what goes on in Latin America, there's a lot of U.S. influence in those markets down there. And it's to the benefit of the U.S., in my opinion, in terms of trade. Yeah. So you agree with me that we could have a better America's trade and be less dependent on uh, China trade. Uh, And again, it, it strengthens the block. Uh, you you could even make the environmental argument that is better for the environment than uh, hauling stuff across the Pacific. But also I think there's the geopolitical turmoil situation that can be averted. Well, labor costs are cheap in Latin America. The other thing is we can't afford to lose those partners to China because China would love to to, to partner up with Latin America. And we got to stop that from happening. Well, they'd steal their resources and they'd also have have a huge business partner in our backyard that, again, puts them in the Western Hemisphere and puts us more at risk. So that's the concern there. And I I know my ag people, they don't know they they know I'm not yelling at them, but I go to these ag meetings and I preach this anti-China thing. And I know that the guy who raises pork or the, you know, the they're sitting out there saying, Damien, that's our biggest customer i'm like I, i'm fine i get that but it's time for us to it's time for us to not just become too complacent you know uh just because it's easy to have them as a customer and it's big doesn't mean it's good for us long term i think it's really bad for us long term middle class in latin america is growing i think at a very fast fast pace and those are our ultimate consumers yeah with the exception of venezuela we got a real good well, <laughs> that's correct yep uh, last thoughts, Kirk Covington, uh, weather, and we don't talk about the weather uh, too much here. Um, there is concern about our own productivity with this massive run up in commodity prices, wheat's up 70% or something like this, uh, depending on the day to day. And I don't do, uh, I don't do minute by minute market uh, graphing, but, um, we got, we got dryness. Friend of mine, uh, going to be on my business of ag success group uh, on Friday as a presenter. They grow about 11,000 acres of wheat in Colorado, and some of it they planted in the fall and never even came up. So they didn't have any moisture. We talk about throwing fuel on the fire of wheat shortages. We don't grow a lot of wheat in Indiana. We grow some, right. and we have precipitation. So we can grow it. We just don't have a lot there. It's the central plains and the in the, in the northwest. They're all dry. Are we going to be yep. Yeah, so I, I was asked this question not too long ago. What I mean, what can a farmer? This, it's always the great question from the. What can a farmer do? Uh, well, unless you're God, uh, you can't make it rain anymore. But what, what you are seeing, and, and I do think that there's going to be a challenge. I think you see uh, cow calf operational feeders that are starting to thin their herds. 
because they just don't have enough feed. You're looking at dairy operations that maybe, you know, milk might be 23 bucks a hundred weight, but if, you're, if your margins are squeezed to the point that you can't afford to pay for the hay, the labor, I mean, again, not to go down the entire list again, Yeah, maybe it's better to shrink than to grow, right? And then, you know, um, are there alternative crops you can grow? Well, that sounds great, but it, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, there are parts of Pacific Northwest where, you know, wheat is what wheat is, right? And it's, and it's uh, you know, a thriving commodity, particularly in the Eastern half. And bottom line is, what can you do? Well, you know, I know they're looking at kind of a model that they use in California, which is, you know, water wheeling or what you call, you know, basically water banking and selling it uh, from the, the North to the South. And that all sounds great, but it's not a developed market. It's just kind of a test. In the meantime, your grass is burning up. Right. I, I do. I had heard some farmers that you know are you know irrigating that have the build. They'll do deficit irrigation. In other words, instead of pouring the water on you know to get that crop, they might you know pour two thirds of the water on and get a less a smaller crop. Maybe not the quality is as good as it is, but it gets them through. But the bottom line is the feed. You know the cow calf operations, the dairy operations. The, they're 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 going to have a tough time getting feeding up in that area, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And then remember, I, I always have to correct people, uh, and, and I don't do it in any any condescending way. But I remember once when when grains got like this before a decade or so ago, and I said, I don't know if you can uh, have that uh, cattle operation when you're feeding seven dollar corn. And the guy said, But I'm not feeding seven dollar corn. See, I grow up myself. And I said, Well, if you could harvest it and take it to the grain elevator and sell it for $7, you're feeding $7 corn. And that was something that I couldn't quite communicate to this person that he thought that he was only feeding $4.75 corn because he grew it himself. And I said, no, you're feeding $7 corn because that's what you could be selling it for. So the that's reality right. is uh, that's going to be an issue on that. So I agree with you that we're going to see some squeeze on on livestock that needs the grain for feed with the with the stock to use ratios and the and the amount of grain um, uh, price escalation we've seen. And um, this would be a tough time. You know, it's kind of like the perfect storm. We've already got Ukraine. We got the inputs. We got the inflation. We got turmoil. Uh, we're trying to come out of the government locking things down, getting back to normal. And then if we see a weather event, it's the perfect storm. And it's not something that we want to see. Yeah, it's really kind of interesting. I'll just one anecdotal story. You know, farmers are particularly the ones that have been faced with that are that are faced with crises and they have to deal with it themselves. They're the most resilient, thoughtful, creative group of business owners in the United States. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I look at if I just relate one story to water, right? Right. California is a bellwether state for doing stupid things <laughs> when it comes to water. Right. Everyone says, oh, it's the drought. California it is not a drought. California's been going through these cycles long before I was born. What we failed to do was rebuild infrastructure. We failed to build higher dams. We failed to build more dams. We failed to improve our canal systems. And we let another 10 billion people into this. That's exaggeration. But we let 10 million more people into the state and, the, and they're all living in Los Angeles, San Francisco and have no idea that there's an issue here until they can't flush their toilet or brush their teeth. And yep. that's what it's going to come down to. But it's interesting. I'm dealing with some farmers in Hearn County area 
And they're the first ones. And so SIG, the SIGMA rule, right, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, is going to start restricting the amount of water you can pump out of the ground. It's a perfect storm because they've got young pistachios, which are drought resistant. And on similar pieces of property in that water district, they have some very old almonds that are going to uh, start to eat their economic life. Yep. So they're going to they're going to they're going to push pile and burn those almonds, preserve that water for the pistachios. And it's actually going to improve the overall value and plant value based on the projections we've seen. And they'll have plenty of water to farm that. So it's going to be the old hopscotch farming thing. Right. Yep. And so. It, farmers get very creative and I look at that deal and they say, would you finance this? I said, not only would I finance it, I'd buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you said, it went from looking like, boy, we're screwed to now it's just going to be, they're shuffling around. They're going to lose, they're going to lose acres, but they're going to gain productivity. And it's because it's fixed, it's fixed based on water. Interesting. Uh, because I've also got, we just, we're recording this after I recorded with almonds and I'm going to be dropping an almond episode, which the listener can go and listen to because I will drop it before this one. And it's all about what you just talked about. This is coming down to the haves and the have nots out West. It's not just, it's going to be the have that includes Arizona. That includes, you know, Oregon, Washington, California, probably Idaho as well. It's going to be the have and the have nots. And ultimately, uh, those that planned ahead, those that saw this coming, those that have, you know, uh, done something to be proactive in dealing with this are going to survive and they're going to thrive. The ones that are sitting back there saying, hey, you know, we'll just sue the government. Uh, good luck. Yeah. Sigma in California is litigation proof, in my opinion. And if yeah. you don't, think that's true. Wait until they take your water over because they already have. They just don't know it. Yeah, I know. And it's nothing where it's nothing where there's nothing we're cheering on you and I. It's just that we understand the reality of it. It's going to be the haves and the have nots of water. And it's going to be the battle. And frankly, I think that battle happens everywhere from about Colorado West. It might even it, it sure. might even creep into the Agalala situation. Yeah, in Texas and Kansas. Yep. The environmentalists have been after the uh, the uh, Agalala aquifer uh, pumping for since I was a kid. All right. They want to learn more about what you got to say. His name's Kurt Covington. I keep up with him on LinkedIn. Kurt with a C, Covington with a C. Kurt Covington, Senior Director of Institutional Credit Ag America. Ag America is one of the largest non-bank agricultural lending firms in the United States of America. Kurt's my buddy. We've been uh, on the dais together at different speaking events and corporate meetings. And also he's been on this podcast before. He'll be back because he's uh, he's always got good stuff to say. If they want to find you or find Ag America, where do they go? www.agamerica.com. Thanks for being here. Thanks. I wish, you, I wish you brought more optimistic news. You you know, you always bring a little bit of a little bit of a, a Debbie Downer. Like, you know, things are tough. It's going to, you know, you just told there's going to be some. But you know what? I like real information. And I think my listeners do, too. Uh, I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. See you. Thanks for being here. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture. This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. 
visit nori.com slash growers. 